Welcome to episode number 35 of the Video Game History Hour, presented by the Video Game History Foundation. Every episode, we'll be bringing in an expert guest, someone who's done their research or lived through it and has an interesting story from video game history to tell. My name is Kelsey Lewin. I'm the co-director of the Video Game History Foundation, and I'm here, as always, with Frank Zafaldi, the founder and co-director of the Video Game History Foundation. And our guest today, finally, is Jimmy Maher, author of The Digital Antiquarian, which is a blog and a series of ebooks examining the history of video and computer games. Jimmy recently wrapped up the last of a four-part series called The Ratings Game, which examines not only why games came to have age ratings, but the fascinating sort of butterfly effects uh, that came because of it. Jimmy, welcome to the Video Game History Hour. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Thanks for coming. It's it's so glad it's so good to have you here. Um, so uh, hopefully I'm not kind of spoiling the ending when I say this, but <laughs> this really feels like a coming of age story for the video game industry as we know it today. Yes, um, I phrase it and in, in the introduction actually to the four articles. So uh, that's not really a spoiler. But I say that um, it's kind of the moment where the video game industry woke up to itself. And that's true in, in several ways. Uh, not only in that they, this was the point where they realized that they needed to start taking content ratings a little bit more seriously and uh, come up with a standardized system that would be industry-wide. Uh, but it's also um, the butterfly effects that you mentioned uh, led to the gaming industry ceasing to uh, kind of piggyback on the old media industry and um, have the Consumer Electronics Show be their annual showcase. And instead, um, they this was when E3 began. So um, you can trace a very direct through line from a controversy over violence in video games that began in 1993 right up through the first edition of the E3 show in 1995. And you you have some things in here about, you know, how it came to be that there was a hearing on violence in video games and there's some conflicting reports on that. But I mean, do you feel like this was kind of an inev- inevitability either way? Um, yes, I do. It, it is somewhat odd that uh, these two specific games were chosen as the kind of locus of controversy. Um, these in two that games being Mortal being, Kombat. These two Night games Trap. being Mortal Kombat and Night Trap. Um, Mortal Kombat was, was the latest of a long line of popular fighting games. Um, they're known as fighting games in um, arcades. That also, of course, migrated to the home console systems, and it was quite exceptionally violent by its stand by the standards of its time. And so, in that case, you can kind of understand. Okay, this was why um, you can kind of understand why this game was chosen as kind of this um, target for controversy. But the other game, a uh, Night Trap. It's an it's it's really more of a silly game uh, than a particularly violent or sexually explicit game, and it's it's kind of strange and it's 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 been often discussed in the years since you know why this game out of all the possibilities, 
And so there's an interesting there's an interesting story there, which we can certainly get into at some point if you like. Um, but yeah, I think that it was inevitable in the end that there was going to be some sort of reckoning here because um, the games industry had been releasing edgier and edgier content and uh, really had no consistent rating standard. And so if you compare that with, for example, the movie industry where they had had um, a rating system in place for 25, 30 years by this point. And um, so so it was really a, a sign of an industry growing up and waking up to itself and um, kind of establishing those institutional systems uh, that would that would let it kind of operate independently as an industry and not um, be kind of this 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 garage kind of um, collection of you know of of lone wolf programmers doing their thing and um, so so I think that I think that kind of systemization is is really a sign of a, of an industry waking up to itself and um, games coming of age. I think it's worth contextualizing Night Trap a little bit here because I, I think it's, you know, if you know the game, I think it's kind of tempting to dismiss it as, you know, like, what, why are they looking at this game of all games? But, you know, we got to remember this is 1993. Um, the idea of full motion video in games is is fairly new um, at this point. And, you know, you've you've got this mixture of, uh, in Mortal Kombat, certainly, you know, video captured characters uh, literally ripping each other's heads off and stuff like that. And then um, you've got Night Trap, which, you know, the content itself is kind of tame. But it, it's if, if you're someone in 1993, especially someone who's not working in technology uh, and you're concerned about um, the effects of violence on youth, you're going, oh, my God, these aren't just cartoon graphics anymore these are real people and we might be we might be going to an age where you know video games are now realistic depictions of 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 murdering uh people or even worse in the u.s having sex with them um (laughs) and um and not to mention you know things like virtual reality are starting to come about so you know I, i don't think it's that silly to examine something like night trap at this point in time well, yes, and and there's there's a lot of levels of irony that cling to Night Trap in particular, and one of those is that it really was a pioneer. Um, it's a terrible game. I don't recommend to anybody to play it unless you're just you know curious for because you're interested in video game history. But um, so this footage for Night Trap was actually shot in 1987. And uh, the fellow who was behind the whole project, um, a guy named Tony Zito, he um, there's there's a long history there, but he he was a Rolling Stone journalist, and then he wrote for a number of other uh, pop culture publications, and he at some point came in contact uh, with Nolan Bushnell, who was the founder, of course, of Atari. Uh, by this time, he had left Atari. This was the mid-1980s. And Bushnell had left Atari, but he had a lot of kind of um, what, what they might call a 
technological incubators um, on the go at the time. And he was investing money in a lot of different places. And so he was originally, he, so Zito, when he saw um, what was being done with Laserdiscs, Laserdiscs were the first uh, form of, of home, home video that allowed random access. So that means that you could jump to any point in a movie and see that and see that without fast forwarding and rewinding and so on. And so uh, Zito was very inspired by this and started thinking about the potential for video in games. And he got Nolan Bushnell originally to back his project. And his idea was that he would build a whole new video game console that would be entirely, it would use Laserdisc technology and it would be entirely based around uh, random access video, playing back little snippets of video in response to your actions in the game. And at some point it, the, it, he realized, or his, the team that he assembled realized that uh, the Laserdisc technology would just be too expensive. So then they started thinking about, well, how can we do this cheaper? And so they came up with this really bizarre Rube Goldberg kind of contraption, uh, which would be a VCR, a video cassette player, connected to a, to a computer, which would be constantly fast forwarding and rewinding to try to find the right video and to play back the right snippets of video. And um, it was completely impractical. It was hopeless. It was never going to work. But... Um, he, he, and at some point, Nolan Bushnell realized this and said, I'm sorry, Tony, this just isn't going to work. But by that time, um, Tony Zito had gotten funding from Hasbro, the big toy company. And I think they were a little bit less tech savvy. And so when he came to them and said, oh, guys, this is going to be awesome. Look at this. Uh, they said, oh, yeah, do that, do that. And, um, so they actually allowed him to shoot all of this video for what became Night Trap and with the idea that eventually he would build this console, this uh, home video game console based around uh, some sort of random access video and, it, and this would become the first game for it. And the console never got made. But then he had this video lying around for years, and it wasn't until um, about four years later that by this time a CD-ROM was out there and video standards were, in, uh, graphics card standards rather, were improving enough that you could show uh, snippets of video on an ordinary computer or even a computer game console in the case of the Sega Genesis. And... Um, so, so then he kind of repurposed this video into Night Trap. So, so later, by the early 1990s, um, if you look at the magazines from that period, there are just tons and tons of companies that are making games based around uh, this kind of, they called it full motion video. And um, like companies like Sierra are building whole uh, production studios, video production studios, and it's this big, big deal. Uh, but Tony Zito was really the very first one to do that. And so, um, 
so Night Trap was quite pioneering in that sense, even though it took it so long to come out that by the time it did, there were other games out there that were using full motion video. But uh, Tony Zito was kind of the one that had the first um, idea that, you know, we can do this. And I think one final point that's ironic about Night Trap is that because this this was going to originally be released by Hasbro, um, which is of course a toy company, and they were very in, they were very interested in creating basically children's entertainment, and so they came and and gave uh, Tony Zito quite a long list of uh, requirements of what kind of content was appropriate, and it seems that they approved Night Trap. Uh, they said this is okay. And so, so that's that's just another layer of irony that then you know six five six years later, uh, some senators see this and think it's oh this is this is terrible this is completely beyond the pale uh, when Hasbro of all people had already approved all of this content presumably for children. Yes, um, either for children or um, at the very least. Uh, Hasbro was a very mainstream company. Um, they, they of course, made a lot of children's toys. And so they were certainly not interested in rocking the boat and making anything, you know, unusually edgy or that would um, offend people. That was the last thing they wanted to do. I feel like uh, if Bill White, who represented Sega in this hearing, had maybe used that as part of his argument. Like, hey, don't look at me. Hasbro thought this was okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they thought it was good for children. We don't think it's good for children. Yeah. Well, so, yeah. I mean, we, we've alluded to the Senate hearing, but we haven't actually, you know, introduced what it is we're talking about here. So there was, um, well, actually, yeah, Jimmy, why don't, you, why don't you tell us about the Senate hearing? We're in uh, December of 1993, I believe. So we, yeah. we, we've talked about these two games that were the focus of this thing, but how do we get from those two games existing to there being a Senate hearing over whether the government should intervene in, in video games? Yeah, so there are a number of theories, including some conspiracy theories that have been mooted about this. Which I like. I like this conspiracy <laughs> theory. But, but what, we, what we do know is that at some point in probably uh, November of 1993, uh, Senator Joe Lieberman... Uh, saw Mortal Kombat. And uh, the story he tells about how that all came to happen is a little bit strange. Um, the story that he tells is that his chief of staff came in one day and said that his uh, son had asked for a copy of this hot new game called Mortal Kombat. And the chief of staff... Uh, took a look at at what it was his son was actually asking for and said no this is this is inappropriate and then he told Joe Lieberman about it and Joe Lieberman said well why don't we said I want to investigate this further essentially and he claimed that he went out and he bought or otherwise acquired a Sega Genesis and started playing this game. Um, what's very odd about that is that it's hard to imagine Joe Lieberman ever getting far enough t 
to to actually see this game in action on his own because um as if you follow the line of questioning in the hearings you quickly realize that he is utterly clueless that guy about, couldn't hook up his vcr right exactly <laughs> exactly so so it's for re- it's for that reason that there are conspiracy theories and the best one in my opinion uh comes actually from tony zito the the guy that made night trap and he claims that Nintendo hired a lobbyist and sent this guy to, to, to Joe Lieberman to show um, what Sega was doing. Because Nintendo and Sega, we should say, were, were the big two. Um, they were essentially the Sega Genesis and the Nintendo NES and now Super NES were the only two really viable consoles in the United States at that time. So, um, and they loathed each other. They were, it was just complete warfare between those two. And like very publicly too. They are very publicly not playing nice with each other. Yeah, like, um, so Sega's had this ad campaign where they said, um, the the catchphrase was, uh, Sega does what Nintendo, what Nintendo don't. So... They were so they were always kind of poking each other in the eye. They loathed each other. So Tony Zito had published a Night Trap on the Sega Genesis with uh, the Sega CD add-on, and that was a new product at the time. It was the first uh, CD, not the first CD player that could be connected to a console, but the first one that got any. First one that anyone owned. Yeah. That, yeah. <laughs> uh, there was an NEC product called the TurboGrafx-16, which appeared before that. Uh, but it was the first one that got any traction whatsoever in the marketplace. And in so, the U.S., let's specify. Yes, US. yes, in the U.S. And so, so Tony Zito had published Night Trap uh, for Sega CD, and it would not have been possible on Nintendo because Nintendo did not have a CD player. As many of your listeners doubtless know, say Nintendo didn't finally come out with a CD-based console until 2001, I think. Um, so so, so not, Night Trap was always going to be a non-starter on Nintendo anyway. But it appeared on Sega, and Tony Zito insists that it was Nintendo who came to Joseph Lieberman, or rather their lobbyist came to Joseph Lieberman, showed him Mortal Kombat initially, and then at some point presumably showed him Night Trap as well, um, and did so by taking scenes out of context, shall we say, and um, misrepresenting what the actual purpose of the game was, and... Um, Maybe, maybe I should just quickly say the purpose of the game in Night Trap as the player is um, you're, 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 there's, a sor- there's like a sorority party of college-age girls, and there are a bunch of extremely amateurish vampires who are trying to capture these girls and suck their blood. And you, as the player, have control over a surveillance system and you're trying to figure out where these vampires are going to go in the house and then set off traps to capture them and to protect the girls. Um, it was often misrepresented during these hearings and during the controversy of, these, of this period um, in the sense that 
uh, many, many politicians were saying that the purpose of the game was that you essentially were the vampires and you were trying to capture and do unholy things to these girls and, and God knows what. And um, so you were the evil one that actually you were trying to protect the girls. We should say that. But um, yeah, so, so that's the conspiracy theory that Nintendo's lobbyist got all this started. Um, and but if so, it's it backfired horribly on Nintendo because they also got sucked into these hearings and they also um, became a target for all of this controversy. Right. It didn't just get Sega in trouble. It was like, OK, right. all of you need to get. Yes. Yes. Like, you need to get it together, not just say. Yes. Just yes. Sega. Exactly. I think I think another thing to maybe, you know, pause and clarify on here is just how games were sold at this time. I mean, there there wasn't really much of a notion of a rating system. I mean, there was, you know, sort of a an early attempt by Sega that we could certainly talk about and stuff like that, but there wasn't really um, any way to know about uh, the content of a game um, without... Outside the back of the box. Well, sure, but the back <laughs> of the box is probably not going to reveal to you. I mean, like the back of the Mortal Kombat box probably does not show you a head being ripped off of a of, of a body. I'm not sure. I didn't look. But, <laughs> um, but I, it, my point is that, like, without actually doing real research, um, let's be fair. There actually wasn't a way for a parent to know uh, the content of of the game and whether they were okay with their children seeing it and. Um, as someone who was 11 years old and an American in 1993, Mortal Kombat was 100% marketed to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that, that was a game yeah. for me. Um, so, you know, it, this this isn't really that ridiculous of an idea that there should be some uh, notion of a rating system. And it's, you know, with, with that sort of context, I hope that it's easy to understand why there is a discussion on whether the government needs to intervene here. Yes, absolutely. Um, that's something that I tried to point out in in my articles. That um, so so there's a long history um, of kind of psychologists versus gamers. There's a, there's a large section of the psychological community that insists that games and other forms of violent media are kind of automatically harmful and cause aggressive behavior. Um, there are a lot of gamers who like violent games, which is fair enough, um, and take exception to that. And the two positions are quite entrenched, and there's not a lot of kind of nuance to this discussion. Um, But I think one thing that happened, and you can see this happening among gamers even at the time, Um, There were many that seemed to immediately believe that if we institute a rating system, then games are going to be censored. So they're equating um, a rating system with just saying, um, no, we have to excise violence from games. And that's not really um, what... the senators were asking for. Um, there's, There's a lot of rhetoric in those hearings and um some of it is quite over the top and it gets into the kind of smarmy think of the children stuff from time to time 
Um, but at, at bottom, what those senators were asking for was just a way um, to, for a parent uh, to look at a game box and have some reasonable idea of what the content was. And that, that's something that's quite, quite separate from the issue of censorship. And I, I argue in my last article or second to last article in this series that um, if you look at what actually transpired, so, so Nintendo also released a version of Mortal Kombat in 1993. There was a Nintendo version and there was a Sega version. And the Sega version was essentially uh, just a direct port of the arcade original with all of the violence and blood and the decapitation and all the rest intact. Well, now, hang on. You had to put in a code, which they sent to literally every magazine. <laughs> okay, okay. A highly publicized code. <laughs> which but... I okay. still have memorized. That's how often it was exposed to us. Yeah, okay. B-C-A-B-B. Um. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, and so then the Nintendo version was heavily censored. Uh, so so the blood became sweat or something. It looked, people assume it was sweat. White I'm not pixels, sure. not red pixels. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. So I hope it was sweat. Um, and and so it was a heavily censored version. And uh, the Sega version, because of that, the Sega version uh, ended up outselling the Nintendo version by something like two or three to one. And so then in 1994, uh, Mortal Kombat 2 came out for both the Sega Genesis and the uh, Nintendo Super NES. And this time, Nintendo also uh, went all in with, with all of the violent content. And, but by now, uh, there was a rating system was coming about. So Nintendo actually felt kind of empowered by that rating system to say, okay, we have this logo on the game saying it's not appropriate for those under age 13. And now since we have that, we can go ahead and release the vi more violent version. So you can certainly make an argument that uh, the ratings on games actually kind of empowered publishers and uh, council makers to feel like they could uh, have more rather than less extreme content. So uh, one argument that is made very often is that uh, people say, oh, well, the parents should just know uh, what their kids are doing. And it's, it's, they shouldn't uh, be relying on somebody to tell them what their children should be playing. They should be participating in their children's lives and looking at the games they're playing and sharing these things with them. And then they can make judgments for themselves. But, you know, the, the response to that is that parents are busy people too. They're working full-time jobs. They come home. Uh, do they want to does the average 45-year-old parent necessarily want to play Mortal Kombat with his or her teenage son? Um, probably not. And so they just need something that they can look at quickly to, and then and say, okay, uh, what, is, what is in this game? What do I feel is appropriate for my child? And um, just go from there. And I think that's what the rating system provided. And I think, by and large, it was a very, very good thing for the industry as a whole. 
Right. And I mean, as, as Frank pointed out there, before there was a rating system, it's not even feasible in a lot of ways for a parent to really understand what was inside some of these games. I mean, you might be able to ask the sales clerk at Toys R Us or whatever, maybe they've played the game, but maybe they haven't. I mean, at this point, you might be, you're basically asking parents to like subscribe to video game magazines and keep up with all the news. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, it's not an easy task until you give them an easy way to, you know, like, like a rating system, an easy way to see, okay, this is generally what's in it. I don't necessarily have to know any more details. This one's violent. This one's not violent. This one has drugs, this one doesn't, whatever. And it should be pointed out as well that, so if there's a, if there's a rating on a game where they say, okay, uh, this is appropriate for those 13 and older, or this is appropriate for 17 and older, um, there's, no, there's no reason that a parent can't say, well, my child is 10, but I don't, I don't mind if my child plays Mortal Kombat. And there's there's nothing illegal about that. There's no censorship going on. It's just uh, it's just a, a, a system of guidance. Um, so so if a parent feels that their child should play adult, if an adult only game is appropriate for their ten year old child, that's a choice that every individual parent can make. Well, I think I think it's also worth pointing out a little bit the the perspective of of the software developer scared of censorship. It's not necessarily um, a fear that they can't create the product they want to create. It's a fear that uh, stores will not sell uh, the product that they want to make because it has, uh, you know, the, a, a, a larger rating. Um, but it's, it's, it, it almost became irrelevant like immediately because of Mortal Kombat 2, like Toys R Us <laughs> <laughs> bought Mortal Kombat 2 probably in the millions. Uh, no problem carrying a game with that rating. So it 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 uh it didn't come to pass. Although, you know, I I you could probably name the adult only rating games on like two hands from the nineties. Yeah, um, really. There's. I was actually surprised. So um, in, in one of the articles, I kind of quickly went through the ESRB rating system and what the different levels were and so on. And it's, it's astounding, really, that it's hardly changed at all since 1994. Um, one category has gotten a new name and they've introduced one new category. Otherwise, it's exactly what was created in 1994. But um, there is this adults only category which has existed um since since the beginning and several people commented on my blog when i wrote about that and said what is that i've never seen one of those games adults only (laughs) and they are just so 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 rare um because nobody wants to go there it's like it's like a a x uh, x x-rated movie um no quote-unquote legitimate uh hollywood movie studio wants to go there well, because the only way to really get an AO rating is for it to pretty much just be porn. I mean, yeah. there, there are other ways, but like that is historically what it's come down to is like, is it actual porn? Okay, then. then yeah, it's and, <laughs> and those games that are pretty much just porn, which do exist, of course, um, they're so they're so kind of under the radar and underground that they don't even really get subsumed into these rating systems. You're not going to go to Toys R Us or um, 
GameStop and buy one of those games. So Toys you know. R Us was not going to carry pornography right. even if there wasn't a rating on it. Right. <laughs> so. But another another thing that's funny is that so so as you mentioned, uh, Mortal Kombat was a very high selling game, and so it was Toys R Us was willing to overlook a lot of those kind of ethical concerns, quote unquote ethical concerns about the violence uh, because there was so much money to be made. Whereas Night Trap was not a hugely successful game. And it, it was kind of an obscure game um, before it was hauled before <laughs> the United States Senate. And so then Sega very quickly, as kind of a peace offering, you know, get these people off our backs, uh, they very quickly took it out of their product line and took it out of, out of print because, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't worth the trouble. They weren't making enough money on it. Whereas, uh, of course, Mortal Kombat was very much worth a little bit of controversy when you're selling millions and millions and millions of these game cartridges. And then when Night Track comes back with a rating on it after all that, it was probably <laughs> one of the best things that ever happened to do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> a little bit of controversy is not always a bad thing. We should probably talk about the hearing. So um, it is available in C-SPAN's archives online. Um, yes. Which is great. Uh for those of you like me who don't want to watch a video uh, and would rather read it, uh, Jimmy has very uh, wonderfully transcribed um, and and edited for readability the the, the hearings uh, in uh, I believe part two of the series that we're talking about. Um, but yeah, Jimmy, tell us briefly about about the hearing. What what happens um, on, in on December 9th of 1993, the sort of historic day? Yeah. So the hearing was. Let me get the name right here because there's subcommittees within subcommittees within subcommittees. <laughs> In uh, the government? Yes. <laughs> so it was the United States Senate Subcommittee on Regulation and Government Information and its Subcommittee on Juvenile Justice holding a joint hearing. And uh, the two principal personalities behind it were uh, Joseph Lieberman who was kind of the instigator of the whole thing. And um, then Herb Cole, who is probably known to most Americans, um, mostly through the line of department stores that he founded, uh, Coles. Mm. But by this point, he was in the United States Senate. And uh, the hearing was divided into really two uh, halves. So the first half was uh, this community of social scientists and psychologists and um, media activists who uh, were very concerned about video games and the violence and sex, sexual content in video games. And um, Eugene Provenzo was a professor of pedagogy pedagogy, I have trouble with that word, pedagogy at the University of Miami who had just written a book um, called Video Kids Making Sense of Nintendo and um, was very critical of, of Nintendo's content. And um, so then you had other activists and media experts who joined him. And um, so they made their case. And one, one really surprising thing when you read the hearing transcript or watch it today is how little the, the case they make has changed from what you would probably hear if you assembled the same panel today. Um, 
So there's a lot of blanket statements being made um, that video games do cause this when, um, if you really dive into the literature on the subject, which I eventually did, um, it's, it's, there's a lot more nuance and a lot more shades of gray there. Um, but so, so they made their case. And then afterwards, the main event, the main event <laughs> that everybody remembers uh, was Howard Lincoln, who was one of the masterminds behind Nintendo of America, of course, and uh, Bill White, who was the marketing director for Sega. And there were um, a couple of other folks present there, but hardly anybody remembers them. It was really just this kind of um, boxing match between, between Howard Lincoln and Bill White. And so on, on the one hand, they were trying to defend their industry, but on the other hand, they were both trying to poke each other in the eye. And um, so, so Howard Lincoln loved to play kind of the establishment man. Um, so he insisted that, well, Senator, Nintendo has been, we've been, we've been censoring our content and uh, adhering to family-friendly policies from the beginning. But it's these other guys at Sega that are that are the problem here. Look We're at all this here because this troublemaker kid Sega yeah, over exactly. here. Exactly, punishing all of us. Exactly. <laughs> and so then he even said, "Well, Nintendo would never, never publish trash like Night Trap." And of course, the irony there is that Nintendo could not publish it because Nintendo did not have a CD-ROM drive, so the whole point was moot. But um. So he was really kind of uh, playing up to the senators, and um, and they responded, and they were they were quite receptive to to his attitude. They and, seem to have become friends after the fact. Yes, yes, great. yes. They were they they quite appreciated <laughs> him, and so then Bill White was was trying to kind of stake out a little bit more complicated position. Um, he was saying that video games were not just played by children anymore and that uh, Sega wanted to be able to publish all kinds of content, including games that were appropriate for children and games that were not. And um, he was stating that instead of just censoring all games, as Nintendo was doing, uh, to adhere to this family-friendly policy, um, that Sega had instead uh, gone the Hollywood route in that they had set up their own rating system uh, so, they, so that you could look at the box of a Sega game and find out what kind of content it contained, uh, just as you could decide whether your children should see a movie based on whether it was G or PG or R-rated. And um, the senators, though, were not really receptive to that. And I think the biggest problem was that they had it just so ingrained in their psychology that uh, video games were essentially uh, toys for children. And Nintendo and Howard Lincoln uh, seemed at times largely to hold the same point of view, that, that we're, we're creating these these cute little characters and these toys for children. And so, um, and so the, the senators really had a hard time wrapping their heads around this idea that Bill White kept pushing that, no, these are, um, there are other people other than children that enjoy these games. 
And so uh, probably the classic exchange um, was at one point um, they were complaining about another game. Uh, it was called something in lethal lethal enforcers, lethal enforcers, yeah. lethal yeah. enforcers which uh, shipped with a light gun in the box. And so, so this game was out on Sega, and it was forthcoming on Nintendo, but it hadn't yet appeared. And Howard Lincoln was saying that, oh, this is, this is terrible. Um, we've, the reason that this isn't out on Nintendo yet is that we've sent back to the publishers of this game and said, and, and, come, and come with a list of things that you have to change or censor, or tone it down. And, and so he was really kind of making hay with this. And then uh, Bill White suddenly pulled out a Nintendo's gun, which was sold as a separate peripheral, and it looked like a, a assault weapon or a submachine gun of some sort. And he held it up and said, well, look at what Nintendo has. And how, wh what is this hypocrite talking about? And so then um, the classic moment of the hearing. How, so then the senators asked Howard Lincoln, well, um, what's that about? And Howard Lincoln said, oh, well, that gun is only used for uh, target practice games, like, uh, you know, duck shooting or something. And, and when he said that, you can actually hear on the video the whole room kind of erupts in laughter, and um, <laughs> because because it was just it was just so absurd, and but that was actually the tone of the whole hearing, and um, so when it was all over, the a lot of people in the industry were just horrified that you know this kind of dog and pony show, these two people just poking one another in the eye the whole time and meanwhile um you've made the industry as a whole just look terrible and now these senators are all over us and what's going to happen next so so what is, what is the conclusion of the hearing is it basically like figure this out or we're figuring it out for you yes so so i should say that right before the hearing began um the industry as a whole including nintendo and sega announced that they would look into creating an industry-wide rating system. And this was something that, according to Sega, they had repeatedly asked Nintendo uh, to do with them. And Nintendo, who was very, very well known for having kind of a my way or the highway attitude uh, toward business, kept saying, no, 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 go get bent. We don't care. We're not interested. And so then when when this when this all started blowing up in their face uh, right before the hearing nintendo finally agreed um okay yes we can at least talk about making a rating system and this was obviously intended quite transparently intended uh to kind of deflect some of the heat during the hearing itself so now they could say okay we're gonna try to make a rating system and um so at the end of the hearing yeah basically the industry was left with an ultimatum. Um, Lieberman and Cole said that they would they were going to proceed with legislation which would set up a government body uh, to put ratings on games. But that in the meanwhile, um, the industry itself would have the opportunity to create some sort of a ratings board of their own. 
And if that ratings board met um, their requirements within a reasonable length of time, then um, they would just table their legislation and let the industry continue um, with an independent ratings board of their own. And the deadline that emerged already by the end of that hearing was uh, the following Christmas season. So that's to say, um, we want you to have a rating system by the Christmas of 94. Uh, you remember this hearing took place on December 9th, 1993. So the industry had essentially about 10 months uh, to get something together. And they sit down to start working on something pretty quickly right at the winter CES. Um, Which is about a month later, just for, yeah. to clarify. Yes. Yeah. Um, so who's running that and how does that meeting go? Which one? There's two of them. <laughs> the, the, the first one. <laughs> <Yeah>. So this, <laughs> this, this, I love this. Yeah. This gets slightly <laughs> down into the weeds, but there was the closest thing that existed uh, to a trade group for the video game industry at the time was an organization called the Software Publishers Association. And uh, they had been formed in 1984. Um, initially just really to represent uh, publishers of computer software, both uh, productivity and educational software and also games. And in the US, 84 video, home video game consoles are pretty dead. This is, yeah, this is this the was exactly, era. Yeah, this was absolutely at the lowest ebb of video games in the United States um, in terms of consoles. And so because, the, of course, the great video game crash had happened at, in September of the previous year, and so Atari was just falling apart and kind of the consensus everywhere was that uh, video game consoles were done, that Atari and ColecoVision and television that had been a fad that was over with. And the future was uh, computers because computers uh, were so much more capable than the consoles. Um, you could program them yourself instead of just having to play the games of other people. Um, and so, yeah, the, the whole consensus was that computers would replace consoles and everybody would have home computers. So it was in this environment that the Software Publishers Association is formed. And so their entire focus was on publishers of computer software. So then the following year, uh, Nintendo first begins test marketing the NES in the United States. And it has kind of a slow start, but by 1987, it's a real force to be reckoned with. By 1988, 1989, um, it's just huge, juggernaut, unstoppable. And so a lot of the companies that were already in the Software Publishers Association uh, started making games for Nintendo. And so then Sega comes along and releases the Genesis in 1989. And then again, a lot of companies, Electronic Arts especially, was really big on the, the Sega Genesis. And they introduced, for example, the Madden series already in 1990. And so all of these traditional software publishers are moving on to the consoles. And um, Sega actually joined the Software Publishers Association 
Uh, Nintendo did not because, as I said before, Nintendo always had this very kind of um, autocratic attitude, very much my way or the highway. Um, but even though all of these makers of console games were now in the Software Publishers Association, um, the organization as a whole was still very much oriented towards uh, computer software rather than console games. And so there was a feeling, probably quite justified, on the part of um, the council makers and the people making council games that this industry, that this organization doesn't really understand us and is not really that interested in us in the, in the end. And so the Software Publishers Association promised that they would put together a rating system. The, the organization as a whole was not very well thought of among video game makers, console game makers. Um, it was not regarded as particularly effective or um, really it's basically it spent its time on anti-piracy campaigns and... Um, Which console game makers just do not care about. Yeah, there's, right. There's, exactly. there's not really well, there much is, there in the way of exception to that, which we'll get to maybe at some point, but um, yeah. So they were interested in anti-piracy campaigns, and then they would have these like award banquets and kind of little showy things. Um, but they never really dug in that much and did did much uh, for makers of games. And so companies that were making, for instance, Acclaim Entertainment, which which are who are the makers of the console versions of Mortal Kombat, um, say, why are we in a trade organization uh, with Microsoft? and WordPerfect, are we really even in the same industry as these people? Yes, we both write code, but everything else that we do is so different. Are we even in the same industry? And so um, when the Software Publishers Association tried to start this ratings initiative, um, there were a lot of companies that just thought they couldn't handle it or just didn't like them or just thought they didn't have their best interest at heart. And so everything just kind of degenerated into chaos at the very first meeting at that winter CES. Um, and nobody got anywhere. So then there was a guy um, who worked for, who was a vice president of Electronic Arts. Uh, his name is Jack Highstand, who uh, came, went to his boss and said, well, let me try. Let me try to put together... Um, a group completely outside of the Software Publishers Association. And so he convened at that same CES, uh, almost kind of a, like a little cabal, like a secret meeting of that included Electronic Arts, it included Acclaim Entertainment, um, and then it included the five people who were trying at the time to make uh, councils of which only two were ultimately going to be successful, but that group was Sega, Nintendo, uh, the kind of ghost of Atari, and Philips and 3DO. And so they, they formed this kind of cabal and said, um, well, we'll start our own ratings board. And the reason that they could do so was that you had to have these companies' permission in order to publish a game on a console. This is the big difference, of course, between personal computers and consoles. 
So you had to get Nintendo or Sega's approval if you wanted to publish on a Nintendo or Sega console. And of course, you had to pay them royalties to do so. And so if those companies all came together and simply said, we will not publish any game unless it has, unless you submit it to this ratings board and it has the rating on the box, then that would essentially guarantee that ratings would happen. And so that was kind of Jack Highstand's stroke of genius was to get all of these folks to agree uh, to make that agreement, which I'm sure was not easy, especially uh, Sega and Nintendo, who still loathed one another. And um, so that led to the Interactive Digital Software Association, first of all, which was essentially the equivalent to the Software Publishers Association, but it was only interested in makers of games software, whether on console or computer, but only entertainment software, not WordPerfect and Microsoft, not word processors and operating systems and all the rest. And um, then the, the IDSA founded um, the ESRB, Entertainment Software Ratings Board, uh, which established the uh, rating system that we still know today. Yeah, and of course, for for more detail on on uh, on that, um, please please go read uh, the series of articles. It is great. Um, essentially, they they had a pretty hard deadline of uh, of October thirty first of that year from January that that all new games would have this rating system. They succeeded. Uh, ESRB is still here, still essentially <laughs> the same organization um, uh, to this day with 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 um, with some minor changes that we noted, but um, you know, what we talked about at the the top of the show um, was how all of this had some really interesting effects on the industry. And um, essentially this, this organization existing, the uh, IDSA, that's, that's what it was, right? The IDSA. Yes. yes. Um, it's now know, changed. It's now changed names, but it's still around. Right. Um, essentially is what created E3 and, and, and graduate yes. video games into their own industry. Can you kind of tell us briefly how that came about? Uh, sure. So once the IDSA existed, um, it created kind of an organization, the organizational structure, which would allow for E3. And um, I should say that the industry, the computer game and video game industry as a whole had been very, very displeased with uh, the Consumer Electronics Show, which was their main showcase show uh, for many, many years by this point. And, um, well, you, you even have an anecdote in there where they kind of gave them their own pavilion yeah. uh, at CES to, like, you know, to, to make them feel special. And it was just some leaky tents outside. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so they were constantly complaining that, um, you know, why you're always putting us kind of in the back of the conference hall uh, next to the, the it, it was always, you're always putting us next to the porn videos and the workout videos. Kind of and the, it's kind you know, of crazy in, in this era because video games are very big yeah, at this yeah, point. Like this yeah. isn't, this isn't 84 anymore. This is like video games are an enormous industry. Yeah. This and that Mortal was exactly. combat and NBA jam and Mario. <laughs> and yeah. That's all. Yeah. Uh, to give you a picture of how fast the industry was growing. So in 1987, um, 
total revenues for entertainment software on computers and consoles uh, was $1 billion. And in 1994, I believe 94, maybe 95. Yeah, I think it was 95 that they crossed the $5 billion um, threshold. So that's a five-fold increase in eight years. And I can guarantee you that no other media industry was growing at anywhere near that pace. But it really seemed like the this organizers of CES just could not kind of wrap their heads around that. And um, so, so to to the people in the video game industry, um, you know, they would complain that oh, these people only know how to sell car stereos and microwave ovens, which was literally what else was at CES. It was just this it was consumer electronics. Yeah. So it was this showcase mainly for like hard consumer hardware for the home. Yeah, TVs. Yeah, like yeah, yeah. And so and so they really struggled with this idea of of games and and um, what do we do with these? So yeah, the classic story is that uh, they were always complaining. Uh, the video game industry was always complaining. And so at the '93 show, uh, the summer show, which took place in June of 1993 in Chicago. Uh, CES said, okay, we'll give you your own showcase and you won't be stuck back there with the workout videos and the porn anymore. You'll be, you'll have your own place. Well, and then it turned out you'll have a pavilion, they called it. So the pavilion turned out to be leaky tents. And it, of course, it never rains, but it pours. So in this case, it rained all through the show. And several, several of the exhibitors had their hardware literally fried by this rain that was that was falling into the tents and we're in uh, chicago let's be clear it <laughs> rains yeah. there yeah yeah the rainy city exactly and so yeah um so they were everybody was just livid at the end of this and uh tom kalinska who is the uh, who is the ceo of sega of america said we are never coming back to this show i'm done with ces uh, by the end but then um of course he had to come back because the industry had no other showcase so um he had to eat his words and come the january 1994 winter ces he was back that was actually the same show where uh, these meetings that led to the entertainment software ratings board began and, and um, they were nicely put in the basement right so, yes that was actually the that was not the winter show but that was the next chicago show the next, okay. yeah so then they were so then they so then they had complained so much and they said okay we won't put you in the parking lot we'll give you another showcase this time and it won't be outside so this time um they showed up and it was the basement so, so they literally were trying to figure out how, well, how do we get out of the basement and, and, and show our products? And so, um, there was a fellow named Pat Farrell who, um, was the editor, editor in chief for one of the big games magazines, uh, Game Pro. Game Pro. There you go. So, uh, Pat Farrell had this idea to, well, maybe we can make our own show. We're, we're about to be a $5 billion industry. Why can't we have our own showcase? And he was kind of inspired as well by the fact that um, the magazine that he worked for was owned by the International Data Group, which is a huge publishing conglomerate, 
which published a whole lot of um, computer and video game magazines be beyond his own. And one of the ones that they published was Macworld. And uh, Macworld had set up their own showcase for the Apple Macintosh um, like eight years before. And it had gotten a lot of traction and was, in fact, uh, the showcase show for the Mac users. It was the place where um, anytime you had a hot new product, that's where you went, was to Macworld. So he said, well, maybe we can do the same thing for the video game industry. And um, so luckily, at the time, there existed the IDSA by this point because they had been formed um, to first institute the ESRB, but in the long run to become a replacement for the Software Publishers Association. And so he went to them and said, hey guys, I can organize this show for you and I will give you a 5% cut of the profits if you put your, put your, get your members all behind it and give it your backing and help me with it. And um, so Again, things kind of broke down along predictable lines. So uh, Tom Kalinska of Sega said, yeah, yeah, I'm in, I'm in. I don't want to be in a tent or in a basement anymore. And I hate CES, so yeah, sign me up. And Howard Lincoln, the establishment guy with uh, Nintendo, said, well, no, 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 not so fast, people. We have an established showcase here, and we, we have to take this, we have to consider this carefully, and I don't... And besides, Sega wants this, and that's a pretty good argument. <laughs> that's why I don't want it. <laughs> so that's a pretty good argument why I should not want it. So yeah. So in the end, what happened was that um, Pat Farrell had had a lot of people on board, but not Nintendo. So meanwhile, over in CES, uh, they were seemed to finally be waking up to the fact that the that they were not serving the video game industry very well. And so they had a big changes planned for 1995. And normally the C there were two CES shows per year. There was a January show in Las Vegas, and then there was a June show in Chicago. But the June show in recent years had not been doing that well. And they were trying to figure out how to boost attendance and so they came up with a scheme where they would have a January show, as usual, which would encompass everybody. And then they would have um, five showcase shows, which would, each of which would, in, would showcase a different a side of the broader consumer electronics world. And the video game and computer game industry would get one of these shows. And that was to be in May of 1995 in Philadelphia. So then it was a question of, do we start our own thing or do we give CES one more chance? Sega wanted to start the own, start, wanted the industry to start their own thing. Nintendo says, no, stay with CES. Never and, burn Tom Kalinske. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so it was actually Pat Farrell then who said, well, the, I don't want the industry to split here and for half of them to go to CES and for half of them to go to um, my, own, my own show. And I d also don't want for everybody to just go to both shows. So 
he came up with the idea. He waited until he knew when the the interactive showcase CES was going to be. He got the dates. And then he said, I'm going to schedule my own show on those exact same dates. Mm. So then everybody has to choose, where am I going to go? And then to hopefully assure that everybody chose his show, he put his show in Los, in Los Angeles. And this was very important because, number one, it's close to Silicon Valley, very easy flight, uh, much closer than Philadelphia. And probably even more importantly, it's a quicker and easier trip from Japan. So then um, all of the makers of console games would find it much more appealing to take a single flight to Las Vegas than to have to fly somewhere in the United States and then fly onward and so on. So There's a very important Japanese company that might be yes. doing a console this yes. year. So, and everybody <laughs> knew... Reason. Everybody knew that Sony was about to debut their own console. So Sony was the big whale. Um, if, if Pat Farrell could get them to come to his show, then everybody else would come. And if, by contrast, uh, Sony chose CES, then everybody would probably go to CES. So by some, by some measure of lobbying, he ha got Sony to pick his show, which would be, which was known as E3, and to come to Los Angeles for his show. And when that happened, um, there's a great anecdote uh, that Pat Farrell himself tells. So he says that he uh, came into his office one day and his secretary said um, that Gary Shapiro is on the phone. Gary Shapiro was the head of CES, ran the whole, ran the whole thing. And he said, okay, well, yeah, transfer him over to me. And then, uh, so Gary comes on the phone. He says, how are you? And Pat says, oh, I'm good. And then Peril, Pat, um, Gary Shapiro says, you win. And he hangs up. And so uh, CES canceled their Philadelphia show. And so the best part of all this from Sega and Tom Kalinska's perspective is that now Nintendo which has not booked time at E3 because they intended to go to CES. <laughs> they don't have a show. <laughs> they're, they're high and dry. So then they have to go to Pat Farrell and E3 and kind of uh, beg for whatever space is left. And they end up going um, to the South Hall of the convention center, which has not been remodeled in 20 years. It's kind of shabby and dark and not, not very pleasant. And meanwhile, um, Sega and the new kid on the block, Sony, they're in the West Hall, which is all chic and um, freshly remodeled and bright and uh, brand new. And so, yeah, that was the that was the first E3. So, you know, I, I think this is interesting beyond it just being its own show because um, it, it goes a little beyond it, I would say, because... I feel like for years before that, if you try to trace, for example, business reporting, which we do here at the VGHF, just trying to build our library, um, when uh, video games sort of come back in the late 80s um, and you're looking for business reporting, it's kind of weirdly split between 
consumer electronics and uh, toys and even like home video. Like that's mm-hmm. where you have to look to see where people are reporting on video games. But um, it's really at this time that uh, I think there's this finality to it where it's like, no, video games are their own industry. We have our own show. Uh, we've we have our a- own we have our own. A uh, trade organization. That's, yeah, our that's, trade organization. Yeah, that's we the lobby. Yeah. yeah, we lobby the government. We we um, we have admitted that games have a social impact and need ratings. Um, and I mean, this is really, you know, not not really, really, but it, you'd almost call it the start of the video game industry because it's kind of its own thing now. Yeah, it's certainly it's it's the point where the video game industry. Um, yeah, again, it woke up to itself and um, it became an entity unto itself. And so as soon as you have a trade organization, then um, you have a body where uh, people who are normally competitors can go to kind of hash these things out and um, do lobbying and um, have have that kind of, yes, you're competitors, but you're also um, kind of fellow travelers and uh that that did not exist it was just the wild west before before this so yeah it's um this was an incredibly important uh, formative stage for for the video game industry as we know it today so your articles end with a little bit of a soapbox um i would say on the perceptions and the studies around uh violence in games and just as we're wrapping up here um I wanted to give you an opportunity to sort of discuss uh, your your thoughts, uh, having read the research. Yeah, so I should say that I was originally going to stay well away from this subject because it is incredibly controversial, and um, lots of lots of gamers get very upset if you even broach the subject that uh, games might have some negative consequences uh, in, uh, in our societies. And Look, um, video games are art, but not that much art. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, so I was, I remember it very well. I was, I was walking, I was um, on a walk with my wife and I was telling her about, Oh, this is the series I'm going to be doing now. And, um, and I explained to her um, the controversy and the history. And she said, well, um, okay, but, but were they right? And I said, what? what was, was who right? She said, all those, all those psychologists and social scientists and so on at that hearing, were, were they right? Do our do, video games really harmful? And I said, well, that's not quite what the series is about. I really, I'm kind of, I'm a historian. And so that's what, that's what I wanted to focus on here. And so then she said, well, but, but it's, aren't you kind of leaving something out if you don't, if you don't tackle that, that core subject. And so um, my wife is a doctor, so she has access to um, a lot of the medical journals, which subsume the psychology journals as well, social science journals. And so she said, well, why don't I help you and uh, we'll see what we can, we'll get together a big group of representative articles and we'll see what we can figure out. So we ended up with uh, this large collection of something like 20 or 30 articles that we went through. And um, 
I should say that it really is like wandering through a hall of mirrors because uh, one person will look at one data set and come to one conclusion and then another person will look at the same data set and said, no, that other person was completely wrong. Here's the truth. And, um, but what I, probably what I came away with um, more than anything was just a, a new appreciation for how hard these things are to actually quantify and actually figure out. Because, you know, if you're doing research in a laboratory um, on mice or something, you, you have, of course, controlled conditions and you can, you can assure that uh, the one group of mice has everything exactly the same as the other group, except for this one thing that you're, that you're trying to uh, look for. Um, but of course, when you're researching on a bunch of kids living in the real world, um, they're just bombarded with influences from every direction. So if one kid um, acts up or becomes violent, and he happens to like video games as well, well, um, how can you figure out, um, does the video game, do they have anything to do with it at all? Um, where is the correlation and where is the causation? As we always say, correlation is not causation. And so um, so just to give an example of one study that I looked at, there was a study that was done um, about 15 years ago in Canada. And they took a representative group of, of kids of, um, so this, I should say the, the study was published in 2012, so slightly less than 15 years ago, uh, less than 10 years ago. So they took 1,492 students and um, they tried to make them a demographic reflection of Canada as a whole. So that's to say that based on income level, uh, sex, um, family situation, and so on. They tried to make them very representative, uh, so they would so they would meet be a be a very accurate cross section of Can Canadian society. And then they asked them a series of of questions. They had them fill out que a questionnaire, um, which asked them kind of a lot of questions about just their life, um, their their friends and their social situation, um, their school performance, how much they like school, um, how well they did in school, um, their, their family situations, how they got along with their families, their parents and their siblings and so on. And then they asked them um, kind of a lot of hypothetical situations about um, if somebody did such and such to you, how would you react? to try to determine how likely these kids were to become aggressive or violent in different situations. And then they also finally asked them um, what video games they like to play and how often they like to play them. So they, and this is what was called, what's called a longitudinal study. And that just means that uh, you look at the same group of kids over a longer period of time. And what you're looking for are trends. So you want to see, in other words, if the kids who play more violent video games become more aggressive or potentially violent over time. And so they, they were, these kids were given the questionnaire four times in all 
uh, first time when they were a freshman in high school, so that's to say age 14 or 15, and the last time when they were seniors in high school, so that's to say 17 or 18. And uh, so if you read the final conclusions of the study, um, they describe um, a Pearson correlation coefficient in uh, the 0 0.20 range. And uh, for those who are not statistics nerds, um, the Pearson correlation coalition, co <laughs> the Pearson correlation coefficient um, simply means that um, how closely related are these things? So if every kid that played violent video games was violent in real life, that would be a perfect uh, Pearson correlation of 1.0. And if every kid that played violent video games was a pacifist in real life, then that would be a perfect negative correlation of negative 1.0. And everything else is somewhere in between. So they found a correlation of 0 0.20 in this case, which in their own uh, terminology, they describe as small. But when you start digging a little bit deeper into the numbers, um, you find that they, they don't show a lot of interest in separating correlation from causation. And there's something that you can do um, in statistics which attempts, attempts to filter out causation from correlation. And that's known as introducing the third variable. And uh, when that is done on this data, uh, suddenly the Pearson coefficient drops from 0 0.20 to 0 0.06. And so that is described by the researchers themselves um, as a trivial correlation. And it's almost, it's just barely above the threshold of statistical noise. Mm -hmm. Normally, if you have a Pearson coefficient of 0 0.05 or less, that means you just, kind of throw nothing. that out. Yeah, 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 that's just, that's, that's that's just noise. We have proven and disproven nothing. Yeah. Right. Right. And so, um, and there are other problems with this study that I get into in the article. Um, I don't want to belabor it too much here. Um, but what I will say is that um, you have to understand that there's a tremendous amount of social pressure on the social scientists themselves who do these studies. Um, in that if you are an ambitious graduate student or an assistant professor who's looking for tenure and you devote five years of your life to a study like this and then you end up coming away and saying, well, we found nothing. <laughs> we can't, we can't say anything. We can't say anything. <laughs> well, inconclusive doesn't get you tenure. <laughs> In academia and so it's not to say that you know that these people are dishonest or anything it's just that they're humans and um these these questions are really really hard um to to answer in any remotely definitive way and so uh one possibility is that there is no relationship um another possibility is that there may be a relationship but i would guess that it's probably a small one because otherwise it would appear in the data in a much more obvious way and we wouldn't have to go through quite so many contortions to get it to appear. Um, but 
but it's there is not a case to be made for um, saying. Um, so, for instance, the, in the media, in the social science community, and among some media activists, um, the most extreme position is to say that um, violent video games are like cigarettes, in the sense that um, no, not everyone who smokes will get lung cancer, uh, but it's a large percentage of them will. And so we are justified in considering cigarettes to be a public health hazard. And some will actually make that same argument for video games, but the proof is just not there in the data. And so, um, yeah, it's, I mean, from my personal perspective, I suspect, and this is how I concluded my series of articles, I suspect that um, if you want to look for negative effects of video games, I think they do exist, but I think we should be looking harder at um, things like video game addiction and um, the large number of games that exist now that essentially are um, engineered to create addictive behaviors and um, pay to play games. Um, or pay to succeed games and um, a lot of games that are very consciously engineered uh, not to be fun or inspiring or exciting but uh, just to create these addictive behavior loops and um, the games that are essentially slot machines often literally slot machines yes exactly so um, if you want to look for you know negative social effects of video games fair enough but um there's just it's it's very very hard to say anything definitive about um violent games specifically well uh jimmy thank you so much for joining us on the video game history hour um we will link to uh the digital antiquarian of course in our show notes everyone go check out the articles even though we just spoke uh pretty much pretty much at length about this subject there's so much more uh between the cracks that we didn't get into that uh i personally find fascinating um in the meantime, uh, where else can uh, our listeners uh, find you on the internet? And oh, and where can they support you actually in your work? Yes. Um, so my ma- my main uh, game site is called the Digital Antiquarian. Um, I assume you'll link to it in the show notes. Um, otherwise, just go to Google and type Digital Antiquarian, and it will it will come up. Um, That's good branding. If you're the, yes, the exactly. That means you've made it if it's the first <laughs> first item in Google. <laughs> there used to be a there used to be an academic conference called the Digital Antiquarian. And <laughs> you I had a crushed little, them. Yeah, I had a little I had a little conflict with them going for a while there, but I think I think I've pretty well annihilated them now. So I I crushed a mayor somewhere. I don't remember <laughs> where he was, but I crushed Mayor Frank Cifaldi. He's ah, there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah. Um, and there's there's a Patreon link um, on the Digital Antiquarian, um, which will take you to the page where you can support me. And then I also do have another site called the Analog Antiquarian, which is nothing to do with games, but it's a site about ancient history. Uh, right now, I'm in the middle of a lengthy series about uh, ancient Alexandria. So um, if you have any interest in that topics and if you like the way I write, <laughs> go check that out as well. And again, if you just type analog antiquarian, um, you'll get it. Great. Uh, thank you again, Jimmy. This was awesome. Yes. Thank you very much. Glad to be here.
Thanks for listening to the Video Game History Hour brought to you by the Video Game History Foundation. If you have questions or comments for the show, you can find us on Twitter at Game History Hour or email us at podcast at gamehistory.org. Did you know that the Video Game History Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and that all of your contributions are tax deductible? You can support this podcast and all of our other work on Patreon or at gamehistory.org slash donate. This episode of the Video Game History Hour was produced by Robin Kunamune and edited by Michael Carroll. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.